All right, this week we continue in our study of the lives of Isaac and Jacob. So we're in Genesis chapter 28. I'll read the whole chapter, and you can find that on page 22 of those Blue Pew Bibles. Here's Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Please pray with me one more time before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, in the words that we have said in this liturgy, in the songs that we have sung, 
we have been reminded um, of how you have called us together, uh, how you have called us your people, uh, and of how good you have been to us. Um, Father, in this passage, we have read about how you have come to a man in the midst of the wilderness, and in the midst of darkness, and in the midst of silence. Father, there are many of us uh, who are here this afternoon who can identify with feeling like we're in the middle of the wilderness, uh, in the middle of darkness, and in the middle of silence. Father, we, whenever we're gathered together, uh, the reason that you bring your people uh, together um, is that you might shape us to be more like your son. That as we hear your word read, as we sing your praises, as we confess our sins and hear of your forgiveness, uh, it might change us. It might make us more and more into the people uh, that you have called us to be, a people named uh, after your own name. Father, we are not people who have it within us uh, to pursue you uh, of our own accord. Um, we don't have it within us to uh, even figure out what it is that we need, and so you have graciously um, told us uh, and have called us together. Father, we ask, uh, as we have already asked uh, today, we ask that your spirit would be present uh, even now as we have heard your word read and as we consider it, that, that even in the midst of these words that we're hearing and the words that I'm preaching um, and this table that you will graciously invite us to, um, that you will be approaching us in the midst of the wilderness, in the middle of our darkness, in what seems like silence. Um, Father, we thank you that you are not a God uh, who is ultimately silent, that you have spoken, uh, that you have spoken your word, that you have sent your son, the word made flesh, uh, that you have given us your spirit to remind us of everything that Jesus taught us, of everything contained in your word, to give glory to him and to point us to you. Um, Father, these are great gifts. Uh, we, we readily take them for granted. We ask uh, that we wouldn't do that this afternoon. Uh, we ask that you would be um, present with the lonely, um, with the downtrodden, uh, with those who are struggling, um, with those who are in despair. Father, we ask, um, even in our moments of joy, um, that those things which we taste in our lives that are so good um, wouldn't lead us away from you, but instead would point us to you, um, that we would recognize that those things that you have put in our lives that are good, so many things that you've put in our lives uh, that are good, that their greatest goodness is that they point us to you who have made them, to you who are the giver. Father, as we come to this uh, word uh, and to this story, which in some ways is familiar and yet which is strange uh, nonetheless, uh, we ask that you would give to us clarity, um, that you would open the eyes of our hearts um, to see what you want us to see and open our ears that we would be able to hear. Um, Father, we thank you that the more and the more that we are made in your image rather than in the image of the other things that we worship, the more it is that we have eyes that can see and have ears 
that can hear. This is your work, uh, and we are asking you to do it. Father, I pray, um, as I always do, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I was telling somebody yesterday, uh, a friend was asking what we're preaching through, and I was saying we're going through uh, the life of Isaac and, and Jacob. And I was telling him, I think Jacob might be my favorite character um, in, in the Bible. He, he, is, he is complex, he is messy. Um, you know, it's probably, it's, it's, it's kind of neck and neck between him and Peter, right? Um, it's just amazing to see how God works uh, in and through the lives of these really flawed um, people. Um, and as we've said before, um, it's part of the point, right? It's part of the point that the hero of these stories um, is never Abraham, it's never Isaac, it's never Jacob. Um, the hero of these stories that we're reading is always the God uh, who, who comes to them and who changes them uh, and, and who works graciously um, through them. Um, let's remember what we know about Jacob so far. Okay, so we're still pretty early in, in his story. We're, we're really transitioning now. I think this, this chapter is about the last we hear of Isaac. Um, so we're transitioning more into, into his life here. Um, so first of all, uh, he is grandson of Abraham. He's son of Isaac. Uh, he is the younger twin brother of Esau, but if you remember, there was an oracle when he was born given to his mother, Rebekah, that said the younger will serve excuse me, the older will serve the younger, right? Normally in that culture, the older brother, the first son, uh, would be the heir to everything. Um, but God said in this case, it's, it's not going to be like that. The older will serve the younger. Um, and so that makes Jacob the inheritor of the promise, right? The promise given to Abraham. The promise given to Isaac. Um, the promise... Uh, that God would bless this family, would be with this family, would multiply this family, and that through this family, all families in the earth would ultimately be, be blessed, right? Um, Jacob has no doubt heard these promises. He's no doubt heard these stories, not only from his father, Isaac, and his mother, Rebekah. Um, I, I had not really put this together until we were studying it this time, but you can, you can go in the Bible and you can find the verses that tell you how old Jacob is when Abraham dies. He's 15, right? So he's actually got a good chunk of his young life in which he would have been hearing these promises and these stories from Abraham himself. That's kind of an amazing thing uh, to, to think about. Um, what else do we know about him? We know that he is not someone who has patiently relied on these promises, right? Um, his name means heel grabber one who trips people up, and he has lived up uh, to, that, to that name. He has been deceptive, he has been manipulative. You remember there was a story of him um, stealing the birthright uh, from Esau in exchange for some stew. Um, there was a story that we heard two weeks ago, um, Bradley preached from Genesis 27, um, in which uh, Jacob, with the help of his mother, Rebekah, um, had deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that, that Isaac intended to give to Esau. Um, another thing that we know about Jacob is that he comes from a pretty dysfunctional family. 
in which the father prefers Esau, the mother prefers Jacob. You can imagine all the mess uh, that comes out of dynamics like that. Some of you have lived some of those dynamics like that. Um, so Jacob comes from a messy situation, and he has contributed to his own mess. He has been deceptive. He has been manipulative um, him, himself. Um, and now we come to the point where he's heading out on his own. He's heading out into the wilderness. And the thing that we're going to be looking at today um, is the tension of that moment, right? The tension of the moment at which, for the first time, Jacob is going to be out of his father's home, heading out into the wilderness. And the real question of, okay, I am supposedly the inheritor of these promises, and I've also kind of worked things out so that, in principle, I've got the birthright, and I've got this blessing. But the question is, what is that all worth? Is that all going to be enough for me to rely on? Um, is that going to be of any purchase now that I'm out uh, in the wilderness? We're going to see three uh, different little episodes in, in this story, um, all of which are going to uh, convey the ways that, uh, that these promises are going to come home in Jacob's life and are ultimately going to point beyond Jacob, right? We're going to see, I don't normally get the alliteration right, but in this case it worked out. We're going to see an episode involving the seed, we're going to see the stairway, and we're going to see the stone. See, if I called it ladder, it wouldn't, the alliteration wouldn't work. So it's seed, stairway, and then it's, and then it's the stone. Um, the first thing, seed, we've, we've said this before, whenever we've been in Genesis, um, the word seed, the promise of seed, is what moves the plot of Genesis along, like all the way through the book, right? Because right after the fall of man, in the garden, in Genesis 3, God makes this promise. He says, I, I am not going to leave things the way they are, um, I am going to send someone. One day, he says, the offspring of the woman, but literally it's the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Right? And so right away, you're primed to look for the next generation. Right? Who's it going to be? Um, is it going to be Cain? Is it going to be Abel? Those two obviously don't work out. But God is gracious and provides another son, Seth. Right? And you, you trace this line. Um, and as we've said before, one of the reasons that Genesis contains these genealogies that our eyes, like, right, we get there and we kind of glaze over and you skip very quickly over the genealogies, uh, all these lists of names and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But when you read those, you need to realize that every time so-and-so begets so-and-so, every time there's another birth, every time there's another generation, it's God being faithful to provide seed yet again, to keep the story moving. Um, and that's one reason that you have these miraculous births, right? Isaac is born to parents that are well past uh, childbearing years. Um, um, Rebecca also uh, is said to be barren uh, until she gives birth to Esau and Jacob. This is, this is a recurring theme. Um, when we see Isaac blessing Jacob, um, right at the, at the beginning of this chapter. Um, notice how he repeats a lot of the things that his father Abraham had said to his servant when he sent his servant out to find Isaac a wife, right? So we started with this in this series. This is back in Genesis 24. 
Um, this blessing marks Jacob out as being definitively the son of the promise. There, there's no doubt at this point. Um, Isaac says to Jacob, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that may, you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. Um, and he tells Jacob, just like his father had told uh, the servant, um, you can't take a wife from among these people. Um, it's important that you marry within uh, this, this same line. Um, now, of course, the difference, the difference um, is that whereas Abraham was adamant that Isaac couldn't leave, right? Isaac needs to stay here in the land that God has promised to us. Um, Isaac sends Jacob out, sends him out of the land, sends him to Laban. Um, and one thing that that's going to mean is that Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob is immediately put into a somewhat precarious situation, right? Um, this is part of the tension of this story. The son of the promise, like the one on whom all the promises are resting, um, is now being sent out on his own into the wilderness. And not just on his own into the wilderness. Um, if you remember the end of last week's sermon, or two weeks ago, um, the, the, the end of Genesis 27, um, tells us that when Esau realizes that the blessing has been stolen from him, he's enraged, right? And he's ready to kill his brother. So Jacob is being sent out into the wilderness with a vengeful brother behind him. And what's in front of him? He, he's, he's going to um, his uncle Laban's house. Um, it's not clear how much he knows about Laban yet. It's not that clear how much we know about him, although when we met him uh, last time, um, you might remember his ears really perked up at the mention of all the wealth um, that, that, that Isaac had, uh, that his sister Rebecca would be going to. Um, Laban is going to turn out uh, to be every bit as manipulative as Jacob and more. Jacob, in some sense, is going to meet his match um, and is going to be exploited. Um, so Jacob is being sent out into the wilderness uh, between a brother that wants him dead and an uncle um, that's going to exploit him. Um, this is a tenuous situation uh, for, for him. Um, nevertheless, he's got this promise that is definitively resting on, on his head. Uh, he is the son of the promise. He is the one um, on whom those, those promises rest. Um, in passing, I just want to mention... Um, Esau. Um, Esau is kind of a tragic figure, right? Um, you see him here desperate for the approval of his father, um, but completely unwilling uh, to rest on, on God's promises, always taking things into his own hands. Um, even in this case, um, when he sees that his father doesn't want Jacob to marry a Canaanite woman, he says, oh, okay, I'll go marry a daughter of Ishmael, um, who was Isaac's half-brother. Um, but if you know that story, that, that story of how Ishmael is born is kind of the epitome of 
human beings taking things into their own hands and making things work. Um, and so it's just, a, it's just a, tragic, a tragic point. There's one commentator um, who describes Esau as the family member who's always beside the point. Um, just kind of a tragic thing. But at this point, we're following Jacob. And now the scene shifts. So Jacob leaves Beersheba, leaves his father's house, uh, and goes out towards Haran. Now, do you remember how long this journey was? So this, again, we saw this in, in Genesis 24. Um, Abraham sends his servant out. Um, and that narrative, as long as it was, it spent most of its time, you know, with the beginning and the end points of those journeys. But there was like an entire month in between. This was a, a month journey. Um, Haran, it's about 550 miles um, from Beersheba. If you were to look at a, a modern map, um, you know, Beersheba would be kind of in the southern part of, of Israel. Haran would be in the southern part of Turkey, just north of Syria, right? So you've got all of Israel, uh, and then Lebanon and Syria, and a little bit of Turkey to get through. About 550 miles. It's going to take about a month to get there. Um, he probably, at this point, um, when it says he came to a certain place and stayed there, and, and we, by the end of the chapter, we know that this is going to be a place called Bethel. Um, this is not very far into the journey. This is probably his first night, right? Probably the, the, first, the first night out. Um, he doesn't know it, but this is where Abraham was back in chapter 12 when he made an altar um, to the Lord. But from his perspective and from the perspective of the, 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 the narrator, what does the narrator call this place before Jacob names it? Um, it says, he came to a certain place. And then that word place gets repeated. It was, it was a place. There was a stone in the place, and he was in that place. It keeps saying place. It's just the most generic, nothing description. Um, there are no distinguishing features of this place. It's not important. It's not significant. It's empty. Jacob is literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, that is where he is. Now, here's the place where I want us to pause. Um, I want us to ask ourselves, can we find ourselves in this story? Remember, we know that Jacob has heard lots of promises. He's had lots of promises spoken about him. There's lots of ways in which he's been told God is going to bless you. God is going to take care of you. Um, his promises rest on your head, and not just your head, but your offspring, your family, right? You're the son of the promise. You're the seed. Um, but now he's in the middle of nowhere. He's being pursued by someone who wants him dead. He's heading to his uncle. He doesn't know how bad that's going to be but he doesn't know if it's the cure. He's got about 500 miles left to go. And it just says, um, it says the sun, excuse me, it says he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun has set. Um, it is dark. Uh, he did not have a flashlight. He did not have a lantern. Maybe he built a little fire, but it is dark and it is silent and he's sleeping on a rock. Um, and now here's going to come the test. And this is not so much a test of Jacob's faith. 
as it is a test of God's character. And I want to ask you, can you find yourself in this story? Can you find yourself in a position where you have heard promises? You have heard God loves you. God will care for you. God will give you what you need. God knows what you need, and he will provide. He's your provider. But have you found yourself in places that feel like wilderness and feel like the middle of nowhere and feel like silence and darkness? And what do you do? Um, you guys, the encouraging thing about what's about to happen is that it's not that we're about to see Jacob figure things out and turn towards God. We're just going to see how God pursues people who are in that place. Like I said, Jacob is sleeping on a rock, right? So on the, I, I, on the one hand, you know, if he's, he's being pursued by Esau, he's going to, to, to Laban. This is kind of classically, he's between a rock and a hard place, but more accurately, he's kind of on a rock in a hard place. Um, if you've ever been out backpacking, you know, if you go out backpacking, you, know, you only carry what you need to carry, right? So you don't typically bring like a nice, soft, fluffy pillow. So when it's time to go to sleep, what do you do? I mean, you kind of, you grab like a stuff sack and you kind of throw whatever, you know, soft clothing you can in there, and that's your pillow. And it's okay. Like, it works. Um, you know what it's better than? It's better than a rock. It's a lot better than a rock. Um, but that is what Jacob uh, is, is sleeping on. I want us to notice that one thing that we don't see Jacob do is cry out to God. Um, we don't see him pray. He doesn't ask for help. It just says, sun went down. He found a rock, and he went to sleep. That's it. And that's when God shows up. Uh, Jacob has a dream, right? Um, now think about what he sees in this dream and what he must be thinking when he, when he first sees it. It says he sees a stairway, right? There's a stairway, not a, not a ladder, because I need an S, um, although stairway is actually a pretty good translation of, of this word. He sees a, a stairway, and it says that the stairway is set upon the earth and reaching up to heaven. Okay, so you get the sense that this is something that has come down from heaven, right, and has reached all the way down to the earth. So this is not just like the Tower of Babel, right, where, where humans were trying to build their way up to God. And do and you remember, like, did they make it? The, the, the story in the Tower of Babel says that God has to, like, come down to see what they're doing. Uh, so no matter how significant this thing was, it wasn't reaching to heaven. But this is actually coming from heaven and is reaching all the way to the earth. And there's angels ascending and descending, like emissaries of God's power, right? Um, this is an impressive sight. Um, this is something that might have been terrifying uh, to look at. And it says that the Lord himself is standing at the top of it. What do you think Jacob expects God to say? God hasn't addressed Jacob directly before this passage. At least there's, it's not recorded. There's no place where God has spoken directly to Jacob until here. What do you think that he expects? Um, he has cheated his way into the birthright. He has stolen the blessing. Do you think he might be a little bit afraid 
that God is justly going to curse him, going to condemn him, going to call him to account for what he does. That's the tension of this moment. But instead, here's what we read. God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the first thing, God repeats all of the promises. Right? This is, this is what he has said to Abraham. This is what he has said to Isaac. And so in saying this, God is saying, I have not left you. I have not left your family. I have not abandoned my promises to you. But then he keeps going. And God says something to Jacob that he hasn't said before. Um, this is more than what he said to Abraham. This is more than what he said to Isaac. And it is so deeply personal. He has not said this before. He says, behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. Remember the tension? Son of the promise has been sent out. God addresses exactly that. I will bring you back. He says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here's what I think God is saying. Here's what he's saying to Jacob, and, and, and again, if you can find yourself in this story, here, here's what God is saying to you. Um, to the extent that all of us share in common that tendency towards manipulation and scheming, right, working things out for ourselves, um, being heel grabbers. God is saying, hey, Jacob, I see you. I know you. I have not forgotten you. I remember you. Jacob has spent his entire life convinced that he has to make his own way in the world. Even though there was that oracle, right, the older will serve the younger, um, Jacob wasn't able to wait and, and see, like, how is that going to play out? What is, what is God going to do? He was convinced um, that he had to work it out for himself. He was convinced that he was alone, that he had to make his own way in the world. It's amazing how graciously God corrects his misconceptions here, isn't it? So I know what you're running from, and I will be with you. I will bring you back. Um, you know, I do want to say that, 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 that tendency that we have um, to think that we have to work things out for ourselves. Um, on the one hand, it's a natural thing. Um, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of silence, um, it can feel uh, like we're alone, like God doesn't see us, like God um, doesn't care for us, that he's not going to provide. Um, but as we've said before, do you recognize in that the lie, the one big lie, that Satan has always been asking humanity to believe. That God is not who he says he is. 
And it's kind of an irony when believing that lie turns us towards bitterness toward God, towards anger towards God, which it can. There's kind of an irony in believing on the one hand, look, God is big enough and he is powerful enough, he is infinite, he's God, he could be providing. He could be giving me what I need and he's not. But there's a certain arrogance in being able to say that on the one hand, God is that powerful that he could be doing um, what I need. But I'm big enough, I'm powerful enough, I have the perspective to see that there's not really any good reason that he's not doing what I want. That there can't be anything in this that God is doing which is ultimately for my good. There's a certain irony in that. There's a certain arrogance in that. It's amazing how graciously God is willing to correct our misconceptions about him, isn't it? Um, when Jacob wakes up, it says that he's afraid. Um, and I think what this is talking about uh, is what we talked about last fall. It's about the fear of the Lord. He, he, he's, now, he's now rightly appreciating who God is. Uh, if you remember, we talked about the fear of the Lord uh, being an off-filled orientation towards God in all aspects of your life that leads towards obedience. And I think that's what we're beginning to see in Jacob, even though it's going to be a while before we start seeing a pattern of obedience uh, in, in him. But it is some progress that Jacob now appears, appears to fear God more than his brother. How does he respond? He responds with worship. He takes that stone, that rock that he was sleeping on. Um, he anoints it with oil. He sets it up as a pillar, and he says, this stone one day is going to be the first stone in the house of God. Um, he said, this place is the house of God, and I didn't even know it. This is the gate of heaven, and I didn't know it. Um, and so he sets up a place that'll be a marker of where God met him. And he says um, that he'll offer to God a tenth of all that he has. Um, it's not the first time that a tithe, a tenth, um, is, is mentioned, um, but this is the pattern of the Old Testament, that that is, that that is an appropriate way of honoring God um, by giving back to him a tenth of all that he has given uh, to you. Um, it's notable, isn't it, that in what he says, he attaches conditions, right? I mean, God came to him without any conditions at all, right? He, God did not come to him and say, I've seen your deception and I've seen your manipulation, and if you can get your act together and quit doing that, then I'll take care of you. He didn't say that. He just said, I am with you, and I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to bring you back to this place. No conditions. And yet, Jacob says in verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, etc., then the Lord shall be my God and this stone shall be, shall be God's house. Um, this is not a great response, right? Um, but again, it's amazing how gracious God is, that he is working through someone who, even at this point and through a lot of the rest of this story, um, is not going to get it right. Uh, is going to be really flawed um, and imperfect. It's another example of how the real hero of this story 
um, isn't Jacob. Um, it's, it's God. Um, of course, the other, real horror, the other real hero of this story, um, as of all the stories that we read in the Bible, is the one that the story is pointing to, right? These stories are always pointing beyond themselves. We have seen seed, and we have seen stairway, and we have seen stone, right? And all of those are pointing themselves at Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who's the ultimate seed, right? Which seed was going to crush the head of the serpent? It turns out not to be Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not going to be Joseph or any of his 11 brothers, right? We're going to go generation after generation until we finally meet the one, until we finally meet Jesus, uh, who's, who's, who's the seed of the woman who's going to crush uh, the head of the serpent. Um, that stairway, do you remember, this is going back a while, back in January of last year, when we started preaching to the Gospel of John, there's this weird place when Jesus first meets uh, Nathaniel, one of his disciples, um, has this weird interaction with him where he tells Nathaniel, you know, before you came to me, I saw you sitting under that fig tree. And Nathaniel's really impressed by that. How'd you know I was under the fig tree? You must be the one. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. And he specifically says, he says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Notice that Jesus does not say, uh, he's playing off of that dream, of course. Notice that he doesn't say, remember that dream that Jacob had and there was, and there was a stairway um, and the Lord was at the top of the stairway? Well, guess what? You're going to see a stairway and the Son of Man will be at the top of it and you'll be able to ascend. If Jesus said that, it would be tantamount to him saying, look, you can reach me. There are steps. I can show you the steps to get to me. And if you do them, then we'll be together. That's not what Jesus says. Every other way of thinking about meaning and significance in life, every other religion, every a-religious way, it's always there are certain steps, and if you follow them, then you'll get what really matters. Jesus is the only one that says, no, 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 it's not that there are steps to me. I'm the steps. I am the stairway. I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says later. And this stone, right, this first stone, the cornerstone, as it were, of the house of God. Um, church fathers going back to Augustine and Cyril of Alexandria have all said, this is Jesus, right? Because who else was anointed? Who else was going to be the Messiah, the Christ? Who else was going to be the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, but the first stone in a house that God is building, of which we are all built into it as living stones uh, to be the temple? And above all, the promise. The promise is what's really pointing us at Jesus, right? I will be with you. That's always been God's purpose. God has always been a God who purposed to dwell with his people. And in Jesus Christ, we see the one who's not just, not just the one who makes that promise and, and not just the one who fulfills that promise. He's the one who literally is that promise. He literally is God with us. He is Emmanuel. 
He's the one that fulfills the promise that God makes. I will be with you. I will be with you when you pass through the water. I'll be with you when you pass through the fire. Jesus himself, at the end of Matthew's gospel, says, I will be with you until the end of the age. And he's faithful to that promise, to be with us. He's with us every time we gather. He's with us every time we sit under his word. Um, He is with us spiritually and really in this table that he's inviting us to now. Can we grasp hold of this promise together? If we can find ourselves in this story as Jacob, can we receive the promise that Jacob received? And can we take hold of it now? Before we come to this table to do that very thing, let's pray to God and give him thanks.